I received a message that Mrs. Kennedy wanted to see me. So I went on back through the presidential compartment. She stood up, she grabbed my hand, and she said, Oh, Mr. Hill, what's going to happen to you now? Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord. The moral of the story is take your 10-year-old son to Hooters. Just dream it. Say it out loud with your words, and then unicorns arrive from nowhere, <laughs> and they just make everything easy. A podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. Hi, I'm Brian Lord, and on the show today we have Clint Hill, most well-known as a C- Secret Service agent who jumped on the back of the car to protect Jackie Kennedy the morning that JFK was assassinated. This is a really special interview for me to do. Like, I love history. I love learning about different parts of our, our nation's past, and, and this one especially. I mean, everyone who was around at that time knows exactly where they were when Kennedy was shot. And to have this firsthand account from someone who was just steps away. Also, this is kind of a warning. Like, this is obviously a very serious thing. He's very matter-of-fact, but he does use some, you know, it's a graphic description of what happened, what he saw. Uh, so please be war- forewarned, but this is definitely worth listening to. So I asked Clint, Clint, can you give us kind of your impressions, your thoughts to kind of set up that day? Well, I, I was uh, in 1963. I had been uh, signed to p- provide primary protection for Mrs. Kennedy. Previously, I'd been with President Eisenhower. Uh, in this particular time of the year, in, in November of 1963, the President and Vice President Johnson and Governor Connolly had decided that they needed to. Uh, carry some major states in the South in order to be reelected in 1964. So they decided to campaign in Florida and Texas. So on November 21st, 1963, we ventured into Texas. Now, Mrs. Kennedy decided to accompany the president on this trip because she wanted to do everything she could to help him be reelected. In 1960, when he ran, she was very pregnant with their son, John, and she was unable to campaign the way that she really wanted to. So this time she was going to do everything she could to help him, including going on the trip into Texas. So we had been to San Antonio, Houston, and arrived late the evening of uh, November 21st in Fort Worth, Texas, and stayed overnight at the Hotel Texas. And on the morning of November 22nd, the first event was going to be a breakfast for President Kennedy in the Hotel Texas, at which there was a room for 2,500 people. But there were thousands more people that wanted to hear President Kennedy and see him, so we had to arrange for an emergency speech site just outside the Hotel Texas in the parking lot so we could talk to these people who were not able to attend the breakfast. There were over 5,000 people there as he walked out in the rain without a top coat, accompanied by Vice President Johnson and other members of the Democratic hierarchy in Texas. Spoke to the group for a while, then he came into the hotel to attend the breakfast. Now, Mrs. Kennedy was not scheduled to attend this breakfast. She had indicated on her schedule she'd given me she would not do so. But in the middle of the breakfast, or just as it was starting, actually, President Kennedy realized that there was a great interest in the number of people there to see Mrs. Kennedy. And so he called the advance agent over and told him to call me and to bring for me to bring Mrs. Kennedy down to the breakfast immediately. 
So he did call me. I did bring Mrs. Kennedy down, and she got a roaring reception. We then had a motorcade out of the downtown Fort Worth to Carswell Air Force Base, where Air Force One was parked. And then we flew over to Dallas, which was made not much sense to most people because of the distance. It took us longer to taxi on both ends of the flight than it did to fly. So, But the politicians wanted a photograph of President Mrs. Kennedy coming off the rear of Air Force One in Dallas at Love Field, and that's why we had to fly. Now, early that morning, in, as we awakened in Fort Worth, we were provided with a poster that was being passed around over in Dallas. It said, wanted for treason, and it was a photograph of President Kennedy. So we knew that there was an element within the area of Dallas that was not uh, very friendly to President Kennedy. But we didn't have any intelligence information that would give us really pause for canceling this trip. And so we went ahead with the trip, and uh, as a matter of fact, it was one of those trips where it was maximum exposure for President Mrs. Kennedy, Vice President Mrs. Johnson, because they wanted the largest number of people in Texas possible to see them and see them up close and personal. So the president had insisted on using open cars and insisted on the agents be somewhat removed so that they would not appear to be, that there would not appear to be anything between the president and the people who were going to be voting in 1964. So we arrived in Dallas, and it had been raining lightly, but it had stopped and turned out to be a rather nice sunny day. There's a large crowd at the airport to witness the arrival, about five or 6,000 people. President Kennedy noticed that, immediately went over and started to shake hands. Mrs. Kennedy accompanied him, which is rather unusual for her to do, but she wanted to really help him. And, and she's a bit more of a shy person. You, you would probably describe her as more of an introvert, and he was much more of an extrovert. Very much so. She was much more introverted than he was. He, he really enjoyed going to a crowd and uh, shaking hands and asking people where they're from and things of that nature. But she would just kind of back off because she really wasn't into that kind of thing. But in this case, she wanted to do it just to help him. So we then got the two of them in the car. We had uh, flown special our special cars from Washington to San Antonio on the 21st and then over to Dallas on the 22nd. And uh, in that car, was in the right rear was President Kennedy. In the left rear was Mrs. Kennedy. Governor Connolly sat immediately in front of the president. Now, the Connollys were seated in what we call jump seats, they folded down from the front toward the back. And the back of the seat actually was right up against the knees of both President Kennedy and Mrs. Kennedy. It was that tight a configuration. So we started out going on this motorcade through Dallas. We were on our destination was the trademark, which was a speech site where the president was going to give a luncheon address. So we traveled down into the main part of Dallas, and we got down to Main Street, and the crowds were extremely large. They could not be contained on the sidewalks. They were into the street. People were hanging out of open windows. They were on fire escapes, on balconies, on top of buildings, 
any place they could find a spot where they could view the motorcade, that's where they were. And so we were having a somewhat of a difficult time moving down the street in Dallas a little bit. And I would get up in the back of the car occasionally because the driver was keeping the presidential car to the left-hand side of the street to keep the president, who was in the right rear, away from the crowd on the right. But that put Mrs. Kennedy right up next to the crowd on the left. So I would get up on the back of the car, and, and when we were in that type of a situation, to be as close to her as possible so that nobody could throw something and cause her injury or nobody could reach in and grab her or anything of that nature. So we traveled down Main Street. We got to the end of Main Street and turned right on Houston Street. We had to go this route because there was no other way to get on the Stemmons Freeway to go in the proper direction to take us to the trademark. So we turned right on Houston. And that took us into a place called Dealey Plaza. The corner of Houston and Elm, where we had to turn left, was a large brick building, seven stories, called the Texas School Book Depository. There weren't many people in the streets along this particular portion of the route. They had all pretty much uh, dwindled by the time we turned right on Houston. So as we turned left on Elm from Houston, going down toward a triple underpass to put us on the Stemmons Freeway, I was on the car immediately behind the presidential vehicle. It was an open car. I was on the running board on the left-hand side in the front position. And I was scanning the area to the left, which is a grassy area where there were some people there taking photographs, and some families. And then uh, I would scan the triple underpass to see, make sure there was no problem there. And all of a sudden, I heard this explosive noise over my right shoulder from the rear. It seemed to come from an elevated position. I didn't recognize it as a gunshot at first, so I turned toward the noise to see if I could determine what it was, but my eyes only got as far as the back of the presidential vehicle, because I saw what, how the president reacted to what had happened. He grabbed at his throat and he started to fall to his left. And I realized at that time that this had been a gunshot. So I jumped from my position on the running board of the car and I had to go between a motorcycle officer who was immediately on my left and the car I was riding on. Both engines were rather noisy. They told me later that there was a shot fired while I was running. Because of that engine noise, I did not even hear it. As I approached the presidential car with the intent of getting on top of the back of it to form a shield there to protect both President and Mrs. Kennedy, just as I was reaching the car, the third shot rang out. That shot hit the president in the back of the head because his head had, he had fallen to his left against Mrs. Kennedy. His left cheek was up against Mrs. Kennedy's face. His chin was down on his chest. And because of the position of the head, that bullet from the shot number three entered the back of his head and it erupted out of the skull above the right ear. The portion of the skull 
still attached to a portion of the scalp, flipped forward like a flap and left a hole there that when I got up on the car, I could see into. Out of that wound came blood and bone matter and brain matter. And all that material was gushed out of there in an explosive manner, covering the back of the car, all over me, all over Mrs. Kennedy. When I started up on the car, President's body had fallen a little bit farther to his left, and she then got up on the trunk herself. She was trying to grab some of that material that had come out of the President's head, and she did manage to get a hold of some of it. I then got a hold of her, and I put her in the back seat again. When that happened, the President's body fell farther to its left with his head in her lap. The right side of his face was up. I could see that his eyes were fixed. There was a hole in the skull, as I've said, and I could see into that area there was no brain matter left whatsoever. It had all been blown right out. So I assumed that he was dead immediately. I turned and gave a thumbs down to the other agents in the car behind us, and then I screamed to the driver to get us to a hospital. Chief Curry from Dallas got in the lead car right in front of our car and led us to Parkland Hospital. As we were progressing toward Parkland, Mrs. Kennedy said a couple things. She said, I have his brains in my hand. Oh, my God, what have they done? Jack, Jack, I love you. And that's all she did say. We were traveling about 70 to 80 miles an hour down the Stevens Freeway on our way to the hospital. It took us about four minutes. I had wedged myself in above the back seat, hanging on to the open left-hand side of the car with my one of my feet wedged in to the right side for balance. Uh, it was a little bit uh, difficult, but I managed to stay uh, stay on there. Turned my head at one point, and my glasses blew off my sunglasses. So it was a kind of a difficult drive. When we got to Parkland Hospital, uh, even though they'd been notified that we were coming by the police department, nobody was there to meet us. And then our advance agent in the lead car jumped out and ran in. He found that there was an attendant trying to bring out two gurneys and was stuck in a doorway. So Agent Lawson grabbed one of the gurneys and brought it out. Now we had to remove Governor Connolly from the car before we could help President Kennedy because of the tight configuration of the car. So we got the governor up onto a gurney, and uh, they rushed him into the emergency room, put him in trauma room, too. Then we were going to try and help the president, but Mrs. Kennedy had a hold of him, and she wouldn't let go. I pleaded with her. I said, please, Mrs. Kennedy, let us help the president. But I got no response. So I did it again, said the same thing, and no response again. And so I recognized I'd been with her now about a little over three years, and I knew her quite well. And I realized the problem was she didn't want anybody to see the condition he was in because it was horrible. So I took off my suit coat. I covered up his head and his upper back, and we then lifted him up on a gurney. She released him, and we rushed him into the emergency room, put him in trauma room one. Mrs. Kennedy accompanied him into the hospital. 
And as soon as we got him in the trauma room, the doctors started to arrive from all over the hospital. At one point, I counted 17 doctors in and out of the trauma room trying to do everything they could to revive the president. But there was nothing they could do. My immediate boss, my immediate boss requested I open a phone line to the White House in Washington, which I did through the White House switchboard. And I was in the process of talking to my supervisor in Washington when the operator cut in and said, Mr. Hill, the attorney general wants to talk to you. I said, fine. So Robert Kennedy got on the phone and he said, Clint, he said, what's going on down there? So I explained to him that we were in Parkland Hospital. President Kennedy and Governor Connolly had both been shot, and the doctors were trying everything they could do to help them. And then he said, uh, well, how bad is it? I did not want to tell the Attorney General Robert Kennedy that his brother was dead. So I simply said, it's as bad as it can get. And then he just hung up the phone. So then, at 1 o'clock, the senior doctor came out of the trauma room one and said, I'm sorry, but the president is dead. So at that time, President Kennedy's chief of staff came out, came up to me and said, Clint, he said, we need to get a casket to transport the president's body back to Washington. And so I had to get a member of the hospital administration group to help me locate a mortuary. And I ordered a casket and then asked that it be brought immediately to Parkland Hospital, which it was. And then the uh, nurses prepared the body to be placed in the casket. When that happened, about that time, one of the coroners came in and said, what are you gentlemen doing? We said, we're about to leave for Washington, D.C. And he said, oh, you can't do that. There's a law in Texas that says that homicide victims must be autopsied before their bodies can be removed. And we said, well, how long will that take? He said, oh, an hour, maybe two hours, maybe a day. And we said, well, that's not acceptable. We have to go back to Washington. And he said, well, if you have to leave, please have a medical professional remain with the body through the entire process. I volunteered Admiral George Berkeley, who was the military physician to the president who was there in the hospital with us, to accompany the president's body from that point on, which he did. And so we left Parkland Hospital and drove out to Love Field, where Air Force One was located. And we carried the president's body up the rear stairs of Air Force One. The engineers had removed a number of seats in the back of the plane where we could set the casket. We had difficulty getting the casket into the plane because with the handles on the casket, it was slightly too wide to go through the door. So we had to damage the casket by tearing it off the handles. So then we've got the casket in the aircraft and set it in the rear portion. Then Mrs. Kennedy came aboard and remained in an area just adjacent to where the casket was located as uh, everything proceeded from that point on. We then found that Vice President and Mrs. Johnson were on board rather than on 
Ford Air Force II on which they had arrived, and that they had been conferring, specifically President Vice President Johnson had been conferring with Washington, and a decision had been made that he should be flown in while we were still on the ground in Dallas. And they said that this would require a federal judge. We had to locate a federal judge. We located Sarah Hughes, who had recently been appointed, and she came on board, and she was in the preparing to swear in Vice President Johnson when I was in the forward portion of the plane, and I received the message that Mrs. Kennedy wanted to see me. So I went on back to the presidential compartment to where she was seated. She stood up. She grabbed my hand, and she said, Oh, Mr. Hill, what's going to happen to you now? I said, I'll be okay, Mrs. Kennedy. I'll be okay. She was concerned about how I was reacting to what had happened, as well as the other agents. So it was amazing to me at the time and to anybody who was there. I mean, they just couldn't believe that she would take that time and have that interest because she was about to stand up next to Vice President Johnson as he took the oath of office, which she did. She thought it was important that she stand there and show that the continuity of government continued, And uh, but she refused to change clothes or clean up because she said that she wanted people to see what had been done. One of the things that I, I found sort of amazing but heartbreaking too you know speaking about mrs kennedy's character was that on the day of her husband's funeral uh you know her three-year-old son john you know three-year-olds don't quite know what's going on and actually had to you know celebrate you know do a big birthday party for him what was that like well it was uh, one of those things that when we left on the 21st from the white house we went by helicopter to andrews and John loved flying on helicopters, so the president oftentimes would make it possible for a John to accompany him on that first leg on a helicopter from the White House to Andrews Air Force Base. And on this occasion, he did that. He wanted him to be, have that f- opportunity to fly, and he flew with us to Andrews. And then we got to Andrews, and he was so upset that he couldn't go on Air Force One. And so both President and Mrs. Kennedy were... Uh, trying to keep him happy by telling him, you know, we're coming back and you're going to have a big celebration for your birthday on the 25th. And uh, even the agents were saying the same thing, And uh, but it didn't do him any good. He was still crying and fussing. So on the 25th, which is the day of the president's funeral, there were about 100 plus heads of state there to attend the funeral. And they had walked in the procession from the White House to St. Matthews, and then been taken over, driven over to uh, to uh, Arlington National Cemetery attended to attend the burial, and then came back to the White House, where Mrs. Kennedy, after the ceremony at Arlington, had a reception for all these heads of state. And they were major heads of state. It was President de Gaulle from France, King Baudouin of Belgium, Queen Frederica of Greece, Haile Selassie from Ethiopia. So, I mean, these were very, very uh, high officials. So she had this reception for uh, all these gentlemen and ladies. And it was over. I walked up to her and said, uh, uh, remember, it's John's birthday. She says, oh, I've already taken care of that. We're having a party upstairs. 
And so she had arranged for a little birthday party for John, and it was attended by his cousins. There were no other outsiders really there. Some of the military aides went just to keep him kind of uh, busy. He really didn't understand what was going on. We found out later in early 1964, he then did realize that his father had been killed. That happened in a park. The agents had taken him to go to a park to play. A photographer from the Washington Post showed up. And when the guy started taking pictures, John turned to him and said, why are you taking my picture? My daddy's dead. And that was the first time we knew that he really understood that his father was dead. Now, obviously, you know, most of this is focused on, uh, you know, where you were a direct participant, but, or, you know, direct witness of it. But, uh, you know, with Lee Harvey Oswald, I mean, what was your reaction when you started getting details about him? Uh, you know, obviously him getting shot. Where, where were you when that happened? And kind of what was your viewpoint on, on him? Well, we, at first we didn't realize if it was one shooter, if it was uh, a coup attempt, what, what was going on. We didn't realize until uh, an arrest was made by the Dallas police after Oswald had shot and killed Officer Tippett. Uh, that we were then informed that he had was an employee of the Texas School Book Depository. They had taken a head count, and he was the only employee missing after the assassination had occurred. So when they arrested him in the theater in Dallas as he after he shot and killed Officer Tippett and brought him to their police department, that was the first we learned of anything about him. We had, He was not of record with the Secret Service at all. He had never expressed any interest in the president, and that's the only way we would have known anything about him. He was on file with the FBI because of the fact he had defected to the Soviet Union at one time, and then that didn't work out, and he came back to the United States. So they did have him as a matter of record. But there was nothing in his file to indicate that he was interested in the president in any way, shape, or form. Um, He was killed on the 24th, I guess it was, as we were in the process of taking the president's body from the White House, placing on a caisson outside the North Portico, and transporting it up to the U.S. Capitol where it was going to be placed in state. As my understanding, I didn't see it because I was busy working, but I understand that television networks were covering both the activity there at the White House of our transporting the president's body, while at the same time they were covering the transfer of Lee Harvey Oswald from one police station in Dallas to another and uh, when he was shot by Jack Ruby. Uh, We were really shocked to find out that that had happened and very, very disappointed because we really wanted to interrogate this guy. We wanted to get into his mind and find out all the reasons why that we never had that opportunity. We've recently had a lot of these, uh, you know, documents released. Um, uh, what, uh, what's your thought? Does that change your opinion? Do you feel like he acted alone? Kind of what's your, your overview of, of, of that? And has, has anything changed with the release of the new documents? Nothing has really changed uh, as a re- result of the release of the new documents. I'm still looking to see if there's anything in any of the documents that would give us any hint 
as to the reason why he would want to do this, his motive. Uh, we've still not determined what the actual motive was, but uh, it hasn't changed my mind because I've all the evidence that I've ever seen that really is factual points to Lee Harvey Oswald as a lone assassin. He fired three shots from the sixth floor window of the Texas School Book Depository. There were three spent shells found there in the sniper's nest. The rifle that he used, he he tried to hide it in amongst some boxes near the stairway that he took to exit the building. Uh, but the, they found it the, when the police went in there after the assassination. And uh, they traced that rifle right back to a mail order house in Chicago. And uh, it had been sent to uh, Lee Harvey Oswald using a... a, a a fictional name into Dallas, and uh, they was able to trace it. They found also when they examined the rifle that his palm print was on a portion of the rifle that only he could have touched because it was where it had to have been placed there when the rifle was disassembled. Now you've um, you know served several presidents, uh, you know, in addition uh, to Kennedy, you know, Eisenhower and President uh, Nixon and and Ford and Johnson, of course. Um, have did any of those later presidents uh, ask you to tell them this story? No, I never discussed it with any of them. Now Gerald Ford was on the Warren Commission, so he he knew the story very very well. In fact, I testified to the Warren Commission; he was there, and uh, so. He knew the entire story, but I never was asked by any of the others to uh, discuss it with them. Well, Clint, thank you so much. This has been fascinating, and thank you also for your service uh, to our country and to so many of our leaders, and and, uh, thank you again for doing this interview. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes and Stitcher. To learn more, go to beyondspeak.com because adding the ING was too expensive. For this episode of the Beyond Speaking podcast, your technical director, producer, and head Steelers fan was Eric Woody. Your creative director and part-time leprechaun was Travis Franklin. Brian Lord, your host, executive producer, and specialist in speaking about himself in third person. Additional thanks to special consultant and the pride of St. Paul, Lauren D. of Dean Associates. Thank you to the incredible voice talents of the muy profundo Robert Borges. Finally, thanks to the premier founder, Dwayne Ward, CEO Sean Hanks, and CIO Chris Yount, simply because you need to thank powerful people. If you've listened this far, you clearly have nothing better to do, so why not continue on and listen to the next Beyond Speaking podcast.